player, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each week we discuss and review a film based on a link to the previous week's movie. I'm Ed Howells, and I'm joined by my co-host, Maddie Gould. Hello, Gould. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, I'm great. Um, for our listeners, I'd just like to point out that I, I've i just moved house and we've stripped all the carpet out, so I'm in the most echoiest, tinniest thing, so I'm under a duvet. <laughs> I honestly wish they had... Um, the capability to watch you right now because it's the image is just perfect (laughs) it is like Blair Witch but it's also a bit I don't know because of the colour in the room it looks like I've maybe like built myself a womb (laughs) to live in (laughs) (laughs) yes a little bit yeah so making me think of uh, that bit in uh, Royal Tenenbaums where they're inside that tent yes yes what have you been watching ah well (laughs) Um, so since we last recorded, while I was away, I've watched uh, two films on my laptop. No, that's a complete lie. I didn't watch them on my laptop at all. I didn't even know what I'm talking about anymore. No, when I came home from being away, Gem and I had an evening just on the bed with some pizza, watched two movies back to back, one of which I hadn't seen, one of which I had seen. So the first one we watched uh, was Ghost Stories. Oh, right, yeah. Um, which I hadn't seen, uh, adapted from the uh, from the play, uh, Andy Nyman and Jeremy Dyson. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Did you? I, I did, actually. Um, like, any of these sort of anthology type things are going to be a bit of a mixed bag. But once it got to where it was going at the end, mm. yeah, I... I, I quite enjoyed that mm. did you see the play i didn't know I, I remember being very excited to see the film maybe i need to re-watch it because i came away really disappointed like thinking that parts of it were like, actively bad mm. um which is a shame because the kind of the component parts of it like the creative team and the actors and everything there is no reason why it shouldn't be good well it should be great because i love mm. all of those people but i just don't think it tra- i mean because the play was great i really enjoyed it sure. again like you say with any anthology thing there was like one story that was weaker than the others kind of thing mm-hmm. but yeah. it also had this but maybe i need to rewatch the film because i actually can't quite remember what they did in the film that was the equivalent of what the stage thing was because the mm. stage thing was very specifically stage not screen so yeah i having not seen it on stage what they do i can imagine sort of how it worked on stage it's a sort of sort of almost a a fourth wall breaking um, element to it almost Um, yeah and actually the very final very final scene the final image that you're left with I, I could absolutely see that on a stage and exactly how that worked i'm trying to sort of talk around it without Giving yeah, no, of course. Maybe <laughs> right. I'll try and watch it again, and then we can talk about it because I actually can't remember. What was your second film? It's one of my absolute favourite, um, certainly one of my favourite British movies of the last 
20 years. I would argue it's the best British movie of the last 20 years. Um, Four Lions. Oh, mate. It's so good. I fucking love it. (laughs) It's so funny. It's so funny and it's heartbreaking at the same time. It's, yeah, it does all of this stuff. It's, and that that was the first uh, first time I ever saw Riz Ahmed do anything. And yes, he's just brilliant. It's got so many fantastic people in it. There's someone quite surprising. It's like a very early career, not cameo, but it's like a bit part for someone like Benedict Cumberbatch as a sniper. Is it Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch? Cumberbatch? Bene- uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, yeah, Cumberbatch is in it as a hostage negotiator. Yes, yes. Towards the end. Um, there are snipers on the roof, one of whom is Darren Boyd, I think. Oh, of course, the other sniper's Kevin Eldon. Oh, of course it is. Yes, of course yeah, it so is. so the snipers are Darren Boyd and Kevin Eldon up there on the roof. Yeah, of yeah. Co- of course, Kevin Eldon. He's yeah. somehow gets in everything he played two different characters on game of thrones in in like in consecutive seasons i couldn't understand the casting that's I've got no so problem with kevin funny. eldon whatsoever i just couldn't understand why they'd cast him twice he's quite recognizable and they didn't do anything to be like this is a different character it's not like you know oh um what's what's his face in the lord of the rings uh, plays gimli and also, tree just the Treebeard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it's so weird. They must have just like really liked him. Well, I, I've, I presume everybody does because he's always working. I need to look up. I need to look at his face. I can't quite picture him. Is he one of? Oh, it's that guy, guys. Uh, yeah, he's he's definitely one of those that guy guys. He's he's sort of a very familiar um, British comedy face. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think he he was on the yeah he was on the day to day and. Uh, brass eye and oh, okay. all that sort of stuff and that was where he sort of to my knowledge came to prominence and you definitely know his face oh well what a total treat i love four lions yes that was an absolute delight and then last weekend i went to the mockingbird cinema in birmingham uh, to watch the wicker man <sighs> and it's 4K final cut restoration. <gasps> oh, I love it so much. <laughs> Is it beautiful? Is it beautiful? Like the restoration. It oh my god, it looks amazing. It sounds like those songs, that music, mm. that really haunting music. And in fact actually the the whole the whole soundtrack, so all of the the whole sound design of the movie is incredible. Um and that is just crystal clear. Uh I was interested to see stuff that I've never seen before because there's new bits that they've put in <gasps> for the final cut. Yeah, most obviously right at the very beginning, actually. Uh, so Wicker Man opens with the plane coming into land, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the final cut doesn't. Um, yeah, no, the final cut. Do you want to know? Uh, I really want to know, <laughs> but I also kind of don't because I'd like to buy it. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll discuss it again once you've seen the final cut. That I really be- want to see it. Sometime in the future. <laughs> um, it was on. So um, I moved house last week and it was very intense. And the only night I could have seen it was the Wednesday night. And I wanted to go so badly. But if I had gone, we wouldn't have been ready to move house <laughs> on Friday. Sure. So, <laughs> it was a it was rip. But I was yeah. like every second that I knew it was on. I was just like, ah, you bastards i just really yeah. want to see it so it, yeah it's gorgeous it's one of my favorite soundtracks of any film ever oh, i absolutely love it it's amazing i had a similar frustration but my frustration was more with my own rampant disorganization um 
Because I, I realised too late that they were doing a special event at the Electric Cinema in Birmingham mm. on Wednesday night, at which all sorts of luminaries were going to be there. Uh, Britt Eklund was there. That would have been great sort of in conversation. Um, Reese Shearsmith was going to be there talking about it. Mm. All sorts of cool people. And um, yeah, by the time I realised that that was happening, it was all kinds of sold out. I think I told you um, that Edward Woodward as Sergeant Howie is my all-time favourite screen performance. You did tell me that. And that's so interesting. And it did. It made me think we should start putting together between us, like we should start doing like little like top tens. Oh. Loads of top tens. Um, and maybe our listeners could write in with their top tens and we can see what people think and see if we can come to a consensus. Love it. Let's absolutely do that. Um, also, absolutely prefacing by saying that like my top ten favourite of anything changes on a weekly basis. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Have you had a chance to watch anything? In between all of the chaos? No, Ed, I haven't had a chance to watch anything apart from Frasier. Um, last night I watched the episode where Derek Jacobi plays the actor. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I've just been so boring. I, the only film I've watched is the film that we're going to talk about this week. And I really wanted... So I watched it uh, before we moved house. And as a you've had a terribly stressful time moving house present to myself, I've bought mm. quite a large television. Excellent. It's very beautiful and I'm extremely happy. And I really wanted to watch this week's film again to fully appreciate the splendour of the remastered version, which is what I watched, um, because it was stunning and um, and I didn't get time. So, sucks to be me. <laughs> <laughs> but you got a nice big TV. But I've got a lovely TV. I cannot wait to turn the lights off and watch some scary movies on it. Oh, I cannot wait. Yes. Um, and it is gasping for uh, a 4K restoration like The Wicker Man like we were just talking about. So I can't wait. Okay, so Yee! what are we talking about this week? We're talking about The Graduate this week yeah. from 1967, which was your choice, Ed. Just remind me how we got there. From Primary Colours. Uh, yeah, so last week we watched Primary Colours, uh, which was directed by Mike Nichols. And this week we're watching The Graduate, also directed by Mike Nichols. <laughs> <laughs> that was ni nice and straightforward. Nice and straightforward, yeah. I don't know if you could get two more different films. I don't know, we could, we could follow The Graduate with the Lego movie. <laughs> Or maybe, yeah, two two more different films by the same director. I think you're probably onto something. Because um, <laughs> Primary Colours is so sort of overblown and kind of maximalist. Um, mm. It's got this huge cast, sort of huge sprawling story that uh, sort mm. of goes all over the place. Whereas The Graduate is much, much more intimate. Uh, and all the better for it, I think. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, <laughs> shall we just do a quick... Uh, let's um, remove the mystery. What did you think of the film? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it's mm. it's a classic for a reason. It's had you seen it before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen mm. it a couple of times before, um, but yeah, not not for a little while. Mm. Uh, but yeah, no, I I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I there's a part of me that relates to Ben Braddock um, a, a little bit more strongly than I'm entirely comfortable with. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. I can't wait to talk about that more. Um, however. I should probably tell everyone what it's about. Uh, yes, I was just setting up my watch. So the runtime is 106 minutes, okay. which means you've got 1 minute 
46 by my calculation. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Three, two, one, go. So uh, Ben Braddock, um, played by Dustin Hoffman, has just graduated from college, which I think is the American version of university. So I think he's he celebrates his 21st birthday during the film, doesn't he? So he's um, at the start of the film, he's 20 years old and he's just flown back from his university on the east coast of America uh, and he's come back to California on the west coast. Um, So he arrives home back at his parents' home um, and everyone is super proud of him. All his parents' friends are like flocking around him and like suffocatingly um, like congratulating him. But he is having a total existential crisis about what the hell do I do next? What am I going to do with my life? And out of this sort of malaise emerges um, an affair with an older woman, the um, wife of his father's business partner, uh, Mrs. Robinson. So over the course of the summer, they have this affair in hotel rooms um, until Mrs. Robinson's daughter Elaine comes back from university for a stay. Um, Benjamin takes her on a date um, and falls completely obsessively in love with her, um, leading towards a dramatic finale um, where he interrupts her wedding to another man in order to whisk her away. Um, But where are they going to go to? That's the end. Well, very good. (laughs) <laughs> you did that in one minute and 28 seconds. So you had... Oh! Uh, yeah, you had, you had time to spare. 18 seconds to spare. I talked for longer than I meant to. I was just going to be like, man has crisis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, man man, man, start, man, starts in crisis, drifts into another crisis, has a further crisis on top of that crisis, uh-huh. And then kind of resolves the crisis? Well, but I think that like 10 minutes into that bus ride, <laughs> another crisis is probably going to develop. But so... that's being young, isn't it? <laughs> you know. So a little bit of housekeeping. The Graduate, directed by Mike Nichols, as we said, uh, from the novel by Charles Webb. Um, the screenwriters, we've got Calder Willingham. Uh, who did the screenplay for The Vikings, which I believe you watched the other week, didn't you? Yes, I did. I did not know that. Yeah. He he also did the screenplay for Paths of Glory. He co-wrote the screenplay with Buck Henry, uh, who subsequently worked with Mike Nichols on the screenplay for Catch-22. And he, uh, interestingly, was the creator of the TV series Get Smart, um, which was adapted into a movie fairly recently starring Steve Carell and Anne Hathaway. His most interesting... Uh, screenplay credit to me uh, being a sort of child of the 90s was he wrote the screenplay for To Die For the uh, satirical Nicole Kidman thriller where she plays a weather girl with ambitions which oh my god I'd completely forgotten about that film have you seen it? I've not seen it it's been on my list for ages oh it's fun the uh, producers on the film we've got uh, Joseph E. Levine was the executive producer so a couple of interesting credits uh, to, to his CV uh, he was producer on Zulu and he also produced the additional American content uh, for Godzilla oh when that because when it when the uh, Japanese movie Godzilla came over they filmed uh, I believe a whole load of western content for American oh. audiences and he was the producer on that the other producer of note is Lawrence Terman again a couple of interesting credits he produced The Thing John Carpenter's The Thing oh um, and he produced the short circuit movies which were very dear to me as a child um, <laughs> yeah he also went on to uh, produce and direct um, an adaptation of 
uh, Charles Webb's uh, other novel, The Marriage of a Young Stockbroker, or one of Charles Webb's other novels. Oh, um, okay. I don't believe that did all that well. The uh, director of photography is uh, Robert Surtees. He's got a great CV. Oklahoma, Ben-Hur, Last Picture Show, The Sting, and uh, the Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson version of A Star is Born as well. Oh, interesting. Uh, the editor, Sam Osteen, who's worked with Mike Nichols several times on his first film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, Catch-22, Biloxi Blues, Working Girl, and uh, Postcards from the Edge, and also Wolf. Um, so, yeah, he a long-standing editor uh, with... I really, really Mike badly Nichols. want to see Wolf. I can't imagine a world in which it could be good, and I just can't wait to see it. <laughs> I have a horrible feeling that you're going to be disappointed when you eventually do. Oh, no! Because <laughs> my, my memory is that it's not even fun. Oh, but I could God. be completely wrong about that. I could be completely mm. wrong about that. Carrying on, uh, the production design, uh, we've got Richard Silbert, who we met previously on Dick Tracy. Oh, yes. Um, he also worked with uh, Mike Nichols on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Catch-22. Set decorator, we've got George R. Nelson, who, yeah, set deck on uh, Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which I mm. really enjoy. Now, the costume designer uh, doesn't have an extensive... Uh, film CV, but she is a costume legend. Oh. It's Patricia Ziprot, who is an absolute titan of of costume uh, in, in the theatre, in uh, on Broadway specifically. Right. Um, so, particularly in musical theatre. So she, she costumed uh, the original productions of Fiddler on the Roof, Cabaret, Chicago, Sweet Charity, and Into the Woods, amongst many, many, many oh my other productions. God. She's well worth looking at. She, it's hardly surprising because Mike Nichols came from the theatre. So yeah. it is not surprising that um, kind of the, the team that don't have to be film mm-hmm. trained, um, that they would be made up of people who work in the theatre. And my God, what a CV that woman has. That's incredible. Yeah, quite extraordinary. Music for the film, we've got uh, an iconic soundtrack i think it's fair to say provided by simon and garfunkel and additional music by dave grusam uh, and just as a little side note the production designer richard selber and uh set decorator george R. nelson they also worked together on mancurian candidate and rosemary's baby Ooh. yeah yeah <laughs> The cast, so Dustin Hoffman plays Ben Braddock, Anne Bancroft plays Mrs. Robinson. We've got Catherine Ross as Elaine Robinson. Uh, William Daniels as Mr. Braddock, who I will always think of William Daniels as Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. Oh, okay. I've Um, not seen Boy Meets World, I'm afraid. (laughs) Again, being a child of the 90s, I grew up watching uh, that fairly slight sitcom. I'm fairly sure it was, uh, there was nothing really to it, but I did enjoy (laughs) it. And... uh, We've got Murray Hamilton, who plays Mr. Robinson, and Elizabeth Wilson as Mrs. Braddock. The film received seven Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Screenplay based on material from another medium, Best Cinematography, and it won for Best Director. Do you know what it beat out? Who Mike Nichols beat out? Oh, my God. So what? We're 1967. It's either somebody that you that, that is the person you'd think it would be, like uh, Warren Beatty or something, or it's someone I've never heard of for a film I've never heard of. <laughs> Go on, put me out um, my misery. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's, it's interesting that you bring up Warren Beatty um, because it, certainly one of the films that uh, that this beat out to the best director is uh, probably Warren Beatty's best performance. Um, it's uh, Bonnie and Clyde, so the director on that was Arthur Penn. Of course. So he lost out. Yeah, okay. 
Um, also losing out were Richard Brooks for In Cold Blood, Norman Jewison for In the Heat of the Night, and Stanley Kramer for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Sure, OK. So just as a, a sort of interesting historical note, best actor that year at the 40th Academy Awards was Rod Steiger, uh, who won for In the Heat of the Night. Have you seen In the Heat of the Night? No, I was going to say I really want to. It's one of the ones that's quite high on my list. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah. Uh, and Rod yeah. Steiger's real good in it. Do you know who the central actor is in in the heat of the night is it Sidney Poitier it is Sidney Poitier yeah yeah Rod Steiger was nominated and won for in the heat of the night best actor Sidney Poitier not a looking also on the best actor nominations we've got Spencer Tracy for guess who's coming to dinner which also features a standout performance from Sidney Poitier who received uh, nothing but short shrift that year and we can only imagine why I'm just going to leave that hanging. He did become the first black actor to win an Oscar, didn't he? It's like, yeah, okay, that is a great thing. But that doesn't factor in all of the amazing performances he gave that he was not nominated for when he really should have been, you know? Quite quite pointedly overlooked. Yeah. And interesting, because was, um, was Dustin Hoffman nominated for a Best Actor Oscar for this? Yes, yes, he was. Ah, so he was one of the people who would have lost out. Yes, so the... Uh, so, yeah, the, the other nominations for Best Actor were Dustin Hoffman for this, uh, Paul Newman for Cool Hand Luke, um, yeah. Spencer Tracy, who I mentioned, for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Warren Beatty for Bonnie and Clyde. So you were almost quite close with uh, with Warren Beatty as a guest. I was in the right aisle in the supermarket. But <laughs> yes, quite... you were. But, yeah, you were, you, yeah. You, were looking at, you were looking at beans when you wanted soup. So just to round out the housekeeping, uh, it was made for a budget of $3 million and took a box office in the States of $104.9 million. <gasps> oh, my God. I think it's fair to call it a monster financial success. Yeah, so what... What are your your feelings towards it? What are your, what are your first impressions? Actually, I'd say I'd tell you what, had you seen it before? I had seen it before, but when I was way too young. So I think I'd kind of cottoned onto it as one of my mum's favourite films. And so mm. I was like, oh, I'll watch it. But I was like, probably in my early teens. So I just did it. It just, a lot of it just went over my head and I couldn't really remember it. So um, it was such a pleasure to watch it again from the start. And I have to say, it, a couple of things surprised me. One of them was how funny it is it's so it's funny, so funny. Um, and the other thing that surprised me was how sort of passionless the affair is mm. it's yeah because it's really transactional I, isn't it it's like, okay the graduate what do you think mrs robinson you're trying to seduce me and that leg in the stocking and i kind of think that's false advertising because it, it the, the it is sexless actually and the only times when considering sex is such a massive part of the story the only times when it's dealt with it is deeply unsexy yeah that really surprised me i think one of the other things that i took away from it which i wouldn't i won't have appreciated when i was a teenager is just how beautiful this film is it looks amazing like you want to lick the screen it's so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is It is gorgeous to look at. And I was also anticipating maybe coming away from it thinking like, oh, it's a shame because that's not dated well. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I came away with any any sections where I was like, that's not dated well. No, I can't remember any that I felt that about. Kind of timeless, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about you? What did you think? I'd forgotten just how funny it is. There are several moments that we'll, that we'll come to, um, but one that really sticks in my mind is... <laughs> it's just this beautiful beautiful gag so so well um well put together and well timed when ben goes to the hotel and he's pretending to he's he's checking in and he he's 
all sixes and sevens. He's never done this before. He feels deeply uncomfortable and deeply awkward about having an affair. And it's like it's like all eyes are on him, and he he feels like the guy, the the guy at the desk is going to know. The reception guy is going to know that he's there to have an affair, and he's trying to give the impression that he's there for just just business. So he he books a room that's that. <laughs> no, I'm just on my own. Yeah, he books a room that's just got a single bed in it. Um, the the guy asks him, "Have you got any bags?" And he goes, yeah, I've got bags. Okay, where are your bags? Oh, they're in the car. Oh, I'll have uh, I'll have the valet bring the car around. <laughs> it's just this beautiful gag. When the uh, receptionist dings the bell to uh, summon like a bellboy or something, so he mm. dings the bell, and he goes to ding it twice. And in between dinging it the first and second time, Dustin Hoffman is like, no, don't do that. And he puts his puts his hand on the bell to to mute it, and and the, the reception guy just dings his hand. <laughs> It's just it really doesn't translate all that well to me no, describing it, but it's so beautiful. How awkward he is! Mm. It's just it's masterful, actually. It's an incredible comic performance. It is like this role because within it, he's got to he's he's got all those wonderful comedic moments, which are re- they are really masterful. Mm-hmm. And then you've also got a really complex character who managers without really very much dialogue to convey a feeling that all of us have felt but never been able to describe yeah. um that kind of oh shit what the hell do i do now aimless yeah it's such an important coming of age movie but i wonder i wonder if you'd connect with it when you were in the middle of going through that same experience or if it's the kind of thing that you can look back on with like you can you mm. recognize the feeling once you're through the other side of it and maybe that's why it resonates so much with so many people because it's like shit i remember when that was me yeah that's that's a really interesting point because yeah I think I think I told you that I, I was sort of uh, wary that I might have similar feelings to how I feel about the catcher in the rye which I read far 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 too late and when I came to it and read it Holden Caulfield I didn't relate to at all I was just like mm. oh you're a dick um, <laughs> and I was slightly wary that I'd feel that way about about Ben Braddock but I didn't at all I, I did relate to I did relate to the character as I say more strongly than I'm comfortable with because I sort of remember that sort of sense of whoa what do I do uh and disconnectedness I think getting Simon and Garfunkel to do the to provide the music was such a stroke of genius because like particularly the sound of silence which um recurs throughout the film I think it's three times it's used during the course of the Mm. film it is a song that just embodies that sense of disconnect like when you when you read the lyrics, it's all about being disconnected from other people and people being just mm. disconnected from each other. And in The Naked Light, I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never share, no one dared disturb the sound of silence. Like, everything mm. is so... At the very start of the film, when the plane's coming into land and you open with that shot on Dustin Hoffman's mm. face and it pulls back to reveal this packed aeroplane of people just sitting, kind of Mm. lifeless, not interacting with anybody or doing anything in any way. They're just all completely disconnected from life. And then you get that wonderful shot of him on the travelator where you just you just watch him. You just watch him. And it's 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 really, really beautiful. Just so such such a simple performance. The bit that just really broke my heart was at the party that his parents are throwing for him and his dad comes upstairs to be like, um, come down, come down. And he's like, dad, I'm, I, I don't think I'm okay. 
mm-hmm. and he tries to reach out to his dad and talk to him about how he feels and his dad yeah. just absolutely doesn't hear him and is like come down and it's yeah. like it's really upsetting actually mm, it really, really upsetting well let's, let's let's talk about that party then for a moment because oh my god it's incredible it's, it's so great oh, it's, it's awful isn't it <laughs> it's awful it's um it kind of brings me on to one of the sort of main visual things that I sort of took away from it bearing in mind I did only watch it once mm-hmm. um it's this thing about how the distance between the camera and the and the focus of the shot at any one time and how different that can be at different times depending so when Benjamin first comes downstairs Mm-hmm. Um, it's so tight on him and you get the you feel the kind of claustrophobia of mm-hmm. all of these dreadful people closing in on him and being so invasive yeah. they're so deep in his personal space pulling him in different directions yeah it's awful and because you're so tight in on him you feel like you need a breath of fresh air you're mm-hmm. like ah I want to get away from you and you feel how badly he desperately wants to get away from these people and then you contrast that with later in the film when he goes to um, Berkeley and he's waiting for class to come out and he's sitting at the fountain mm. and the camera is so far away from him yeah. and he's on his own in the middle of that wonderful piece and it's like just that as a tool to show you some character development and show you the kind of inner life of the character in terms of like how he's feeling like feeling horribly oppressed feeling really claustrophobic mm. versus times when he's feeling kind of free um the other one there there is actually like the camera really gives benjamin privacy Mm. which is a really interesting thing and as, and as well when he goes on the date with Elaine and afterwards when she's left that club which we'll come on to but he um, mm. they've left the club and they're having a conversation and she's kind of crying into the wall and the camera just really hangs back almost like documentary style because it's just like no let's give them some space to do what they need to do and I, I yeah. just find it really it's so simple and so effective yeah I absolutely agree I have, yeah how, how fascinating to draw that parallel with that shot later on where he's at the fountain there's also um i think that the use of blank space as uh, in terms of framing benjamin so you talked about that first scene on the the sort of travelator thing at the airport yeah where he is just traveling into negative space he is just traveling across the screen Mm. into nothing into blankness and it's like yeah, that's what he is. And then later in the hotel room with Mrs. Robinson, quite a big bit of dialogue. He's stood framed in the doorway. The rest of the screen is black. You've got the doorway, um, a sort of you know rectangle of white light and then him in the centre of it. And it's like, he is just this blank canvas. You know, he hasn't come away from college with any idea of his own identity. No. He is lost. Yeah, he's completely been given his own... He's, he's been given an identity. And that's yeah. what's happening in that party, isn't it? Is is people yeah. are, they're all so sort of there, willing to sort of congratulate him, and they're all so proud of mm. him. Like, and there's this sense, I think, that that he's peaked, like that mm. his greatest achievements are now behind him. He's only 21, and he's <laughs> been a track star and done great things at college, and now yeah. he's just back where he was before that. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do next. But everybody's just so proud of him, and they want to they want to push him in different directions. There's the guy. <laughs> The first of many quotes that I wrote down, there's the guy who takes him outside um, to the pool and they stand there by the pool and he's like, Ben, I've got just one word for you, plastics. <laughs> and then 
it just it pauses. Dustin Hoffman just he looks at him and he goes, "Exactly, how do you mean?" And it's so dry, <laughs> so deadpan, and so beautifully timed. But it's it is great. also, especially I think once you because you've got the Simon and Garfunkel music, which is very, I'm not the right time for Woodstock, am I? There's a kind of hippie freedom vibe to Simon and Garfunkel that I think of. When's Woodstock? So the graduate was '67, '69 was Woodstock. Ah, okay. Yeah, like everything that was going on in the world was leading up to Woodstock. And to that Woodstock. was sort of the climax of the 60s there in 69 yes. and the climax of that whole hippie thing. Exactly. So it's it's this like, this you know, all that Simon and Garfunkel music, especially the canticle Scarborough Fair, which comes in later. Mm-hmm. And it all sort of speaks to this youth of the 60s, young people, hippie culture, kind of that sort of freedom and spirituality. Yeah. Um, and what is Benjamin being pushed towards? Plastic, yeah. artificial life, <laughs> kind of dreadful, like soulless plastics. It's so funny and so disheartening. Benjamin is desperate for someone to tell him what to do. To yeah. tell, to he is absolutely desperate to be led, and someone is trying to push him towards plastics. It's just like, well, yeah, you would just spend your summer lying in a pool. Yeah. That's what I'd do if that was what lay ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he's he's got that conversation later with his dad doesn't he where his dad his dad goes what was the point of four years of college and all that hard work he just goes you've got me it's so great because yeah and it's it's exactly leading on from that i did all this and i've achieved all this and what is ahead of me plastics one of the other things that surprised me is that the famous seduction scene with mrs robinson that is that night oh yeah (laughs) I'd totally forgotten that. I was kind because of, you're sort of waiting for it to happen. You know, you're waiting for the stocking <laughs> and mm. for the shot of him with the stockinged leg. I think that there's a moment where you see her see him and, mm. and she gets the measure of him immediately and knows that all she needs to do is just boss him, boss him about. That, that first shot of her, you've been so tight in on Benjamin and you're quite far away from her and she's kind of almost in the corner of the frame. She's not the the main feature of the of that first shot of her. She's kind of lounging in a chair. Do we meet her before she comes into his bedroom? Yes. Oh, do we? So he's, he's kind of walking through... And I think maybe it is Mr. Robinson mm-hmm. who is like, and you remember my wife, and she's like, hello, Benjamin, congratulations. And uh, yeah. she's like from a chair, and she's quite far away, and she's also totally isolated from everybody else. She's on her own in like an armchair, and she kind of throws her head back and says hello. I mean, if you didn't know anything about this film at all, mm-hmm. you wouldn't think that that was a significant moment. Because, um, yeah, then the next time we see her, she burst into his bedroom and silhouetted in the doorway, sort of femme, femme fatale style. Yes. An interesting uh, costume design point. Um, mm. She is always wearing some sort of animal print. <laughs> At all times. At all times. My goodness. Um, so it might be that she's wearing a black dress or something, but if she then will take her clothes off and has got an animal print bra on or something. So like... Any scene that she's in, it is revealed that she is wearing animal print. And of course, the um, when she joins him at the hotel that first time, she's got this incredible leopard print coat on, and yes. like she's kind. And she is often, um, in terms of the production design, she's often surrounded by kind of jungle imagery. She's kind of the jungle. Benjamin is water. So she, at her house. When Benjamin takes her back to her house and they're having a drink at the bar, I mean, can we have a moment for a house that's got a bar? Oh yes, just, please. <laughs> oh my god! Um, and it's got all like jungle plants yeah. outside. And in when they meet in the bar at the hotel, there's quite a lot of like jungle foliage in the 
bar. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of like a visual metaphor 101, but it's really nice. <laughs> I guess you could argue that, yeah, visual metaphor 101, I guess you could argue that it's all a little on the nose, but actually I think it's brilliant. Well, I mean, you hadn't noticed it. You hadn't picked up on it, had you? Not not consciously. I did notice a lot of sort of jungle image, but yeah, yeah. I didn't sort of put together the... Uh, yeah, subconsciously I, I would have been, oh, we've got a predator here. Let's talk about Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, do you, do you know what I'd forgotten about that seduction scene? Uh, I'd forgotten that he turns her down. Oh, yes. I'd forgotten that they don't have sex then and there. And he's the one who actually makes the move and starts the affair later yeah. on. Yeah, well, he tries to get out of it so many times because he then, even once they've agreed and they go up to the hotel room and he has that wonderful moment where he just walks into the corner of the room and starts slowly bashing his head yeah. against the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and she ridicules him in order to get a rise out of him, literally. You know, she kind of goes to like playground tactics of like she calls him chicken and that get, and that's what, you know, sets him off. It's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and she uh, she invokes the virginity as well, which is interesting because I, I was like, hmm, you're 21, you've been away at college all this time. The fuck have you been doing? Just running around a track? Maybe. Well, okay, here's and a question And maybe he feels you. that way. Maybe he's like, oh, I didn't do any of that college stuff that you're supposed to do when you're in college yeah I just worked hard and did a lot of running I was gonna say what what do you think Benjamin was like at college do you think he's got any pals no probably not I think and this is verbalizing thoughts as they're coming to me I think he knuckled down worked hard and was a track star and did all the things that he was supposed to do so that he could Mm -hmm. you know then go home and have a great job in plastics or whatever. He probably feels like he missed out. I think that Benjamin is very socially awkward with people his own age. I think that he is able to speak with adults because it seems like his entire social group back at his parents, back at his parents' house is his parents' friends. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because he, they're throwing him a graduation party. It's not like any of his school friends are there. His high school buddies who also presumably have graduated and returned home. There's no one that he's getting back in touch with. He's not ringing up his mates from college to be like, oh, hey, how's it going? He doesn't really have anyone. So when she calls him out and is like, oh, are you a virgin? Do you think he is? Yeah, I think he probably is. His parents' friends all think that he's amazing. He's this incredible catch. Mm -hmm. But he's actually, he's a bit, he's a bit of a weirdo. Yeah, he's a neurotic mess. He's a complete weirdo. I relate hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about Mrs. Robinson? Do you think this is the first time she's had an affair? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Oh, gosh, do I? Her behaviour indicates that she she has had an affair before because... She is like, do you want me to go and get the room? Do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do this? There are no, yeah. She has no nerves. It feels very much like she knows how to go about it. It could be that she's done this many, many, many times with many different men of different ages. Mm. Or it could just be that she sees Ben for what he is and she's like, I'm going to have to take charge and do this. What do you think she gets out of it? I think Mrs. Robinson has got a total fuck it attitude to life. I think she kind of wants to watch the world burn. She is numb and just wants to feel something. And a shortcut to that is sex with a boy. A man. Man? A man boy. Boy boy man. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I don't think the affair has anything to do with Benjamin. The thing that makes me think that she hasn't done this before Mm -hmm. is how she reacts to, to Benjamin taking Elaine out. 
Yeah. Because I think if she'd had multiple affairs, I don't think that she would... I think she'd be able to, like... She wouldn't lose her shit in the way that she does. Mm. Uh, because I don't know if she falls in love with Benjamin. I don't think she does. Oh, no, Mrs. Robertson, absolutely not. No, she's got... It's, it's to do with possession. It's to do with having something outside of her marriage that belongs to her mm-hmm. and it's kind of her little pocket it's has she set a fire going and she wants to contain it and it's to do with it's kind of spreading to a different part of the house <laughs> yes. and she's like well if it's going to spread to a different part of the house i might as well burn the whole fucking house down <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting actually because yeah she threatens ben that she's going to tell elaine all about it and we're getting quite ahead of mm. ourselves here but she threatens ben that she's going to tell elaine all about the affair but when it comes down to it she doesn't want to do that but Ben's quite happy to he's just like yes that's what we're going to do I'm going to do that she's a lot of talk as Mrs Robinson yeah I don't know I don't mm. know I don't know how many times she's done this before if indeed she has it's interesting because she is a lot of talk but she also is not a lot of talk because mm-hmm. Benjamin embarks on the affair because a grown up has told him to do something so he does it <laughs> you know she <laughs> has told him <laughs> to have an affair with her so she does <laughs> to be fair Mr Robinson pretty much tells him to as well it's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah, you're you're so right. It isn't until after Mr. Robinson has told him to sow some wild oats yeah. that he um and I think that he is too nervous of trying to find someone to sow his wild oats with that he goes with the person who's already offered that to him. Yeah. It's like first option. But I also think that he embarks on the affair because he is desperate for connection. He is desperate for someone to understand him. He's desperate for somebody else to define him and tell him what to do. The man who told him to go into plastics, he doesn't want to go into plastics, but it's like, but I can't think of anything else myself, so I need someone else to tell me. I don't think the affair for either of them is anything to do with an attraction to the other person. No, not at all. Yeah, as I said, it's a sort of transactional thing. They each get something out of it. It's something quite nebulous, I think, for both. It's not built on mutual attraction or or even sexual desire. There's that wonderful scene in the hotel room where, the, and it takes place mostly in the dark, actually, mm. as they're lying there with the lights off, where he's desperately trying to talk to her about something. He's just like, let's have a conversation. Yeah. Like, just let's talk about something. Because he's he's uh. still he's still numb, he's still disconnected. I think he embarks on the affair because he wants, as you say, to connect, to be connected to something to someone um and it's after after they actually consummate the affair after they first have sex that's when we get sound of silence for the second time and we get this little montage of of their whole affair uh, but nothing has changed other than mm. they've had an affair and they are people who have now had an affair but they are still people who are disconnected from from each other in the world well actually in a way it, they've kind of managed to distance themselves even further from the world because now they've got a secret and it's like and in particular when elaine comes into the picture and actually he's found someone who he wants to share everything with mm-hmm. and it's like that maybe is part of what drives his impulse to to just go yeah no fine let's just tell her about the affair yeah i found someone i want to communicate with and even if the thing i have to communicate is awful mm-hmm. i'd rather communicate it than isolate yeah. myself you know yeah it's because once yeah once he finds that person who he can connect with he becomes so impulsive and so uh, often so sure yeah. of what he wants like to the point yeah. to the point of absurdity yeah i mean problematic behavior <laughs> oh <laughs> yes 100 percent problematic behavior but you know what If you can't be problematic when you're 21, when can you be problematic? Well, quite. (laughs) 
Hey, would you like to hear some alternative casting information? Oh, for... 100%. Um, so, first of all, I just think it's really interesting that they really wanted Dustin Hoffman, but Dustin Hoffman had been cast as Liebkind in the um, film of the producers. Oh, right. Mel Brooks is the producers. Huh. He was the writer of um, Springtime for Hitler. Yeah. Um, so, they'd, they were just about to start filming and Hoffman was like, please... Mr. Brooks, can I go and audition for The Graduate? And just a little other connection, Mel Brooks was married to Anne Bancroft. Was he really? Who played Mrs. Robinson. Huh. He was. So Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft were um, a couple and their child, Max Brooks, um, is an author. He's a horror author and he wrote um, the novel of World War Z. He did indeed. Um, that's just a little bit of a background, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, so for the role of Benjamin, before they cast Dustin Hoffman, there was uh, Robert Redford. Harrison Ford auditioned but was turned down. Yeah, that would have been wrong. And other, I mean, just like roll up, roll up. All of these people were considered for the role of Benjamin Braddock. Jack Nicholson, Steve McQueen, Anthony Perkins, Warren Beatty, George Peppard, George Hamilton... Kia Duella, Brandon DeWild and Michael Parks were all considered for the role. To my mind, there, there are a couple of names on there that I'm not familiar with. The only one that I could see doing something similar with the part to what Dustin Hoffman does would be Anthony Perkins. Yes. And actually, I think Anthony Perkins would have been a really interesting bit of casting. Yeah, really interesting. Um, the one last person, um, Burt Ward, was offered the role, ah. but he'd already committed himself to the role of Robin. Yes, indeed. In the Batman TV series. <laughs> so, I mean, what a different career path. <laughs> yeah. He could have had. How yeah, interesting. Would have been very interesting. Uh, so the role of Mrs. Robinson, now they really went through quite a lot of people before they settled. Mm. Um, uh, Nichols' first choice was a French actress called Jeanne Moreau. They, um, and it, apparently it was because he really liked the idea because of this kind of cultural sort of stereotype of the idea that kind of older women kind of train younger men how and how to be a good lover in France. I see. Which is like, it's like a cliched thing. And he was like, oh, I want a French actress for that. <laughs> Obviously, they didn't go to her. They offered it to Doris Day, mm. but she turned it down because she didn't want to do anything sexy or naked. Sure. Yeah, I can't imagine Doris Day doing anything even remotely <laughs> mm. less than the kind of Doris Day thing. She was very wholesome. And then other actresses who were considered Shelley Winters, Ingrid Bergman, Eva Marie Saint, Ava Gardner, Patricia Neal, Susan Hayward, Deborah Kerr, Rita Hayworth, Lana Turner and Geraldine Page were all considered uh, for the role. But it did eventually go to Anne Bancroft, who was only eight years older than Catherine Ross, who played her daughter Elaine. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I suppose, because I think Dustin Hoffman was 30 mm -hmm. when they filmed it. So if she was about the same and if Anne Bancroft was only like 38 or 40, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's kind of, yeah, I, I get it, but um, it is daft. So, yeah, I mean, lots of lots of interesting alternative castings, but really, I don't think you could have done better than the cast you've got here. I think everyone is doing it's, extraordinary yeah. work. It's, it, it's a really, really wonderful cast. And it sort of doesn't surprise me that Mike Nichols would be able to get such lovely work out of his cast sort of coming from the theatre background and because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it, it is such a small cast such a sort of intimate ensemble yeah it is it's a really intimate ensemble which is I mean I think um, as well 
I can totally see why it would lend itself mm. so well to a stage adaptation, which there was. Um, there was been one. a couple. Of, I saw one a couple of years ago in Leeds. They do a bit of a kind of stunt casting thing with Mrs. Robinson. So I think very notably Kathleen oh, Turner played her. With, talk about unlikely um, casting, I think, for Benjamin, Jason Biggs. As in that guy from American Pie? Uh, ooh, hmm. I can see why they would cast him in that role for for several reasons. No problem with yeah. Jason Biggs whatsoever. Um, I think he'd probably be the first person to admit that he's no Dustin Hoffman. That's not really throwing all that much shade <laughs> in the direction of Jason Biggs. Well, I think it was it was cashing in on because American sure. Pie had only just come out, so I think it was kind of like you're the right age and <laughs> and suddenly famous he's got a similar He'll sort do. of energy he's not as he's, he's he's more frenetic but he's a similarly um kind of neurotic uh energy he's got the awkward energy really nailed hasn't he how was the play did you enjoy it yes i did i did very much um i can't remember i can't remember who was in it um but yeah i mm. thought it, i thought it was a great adaptation it worked really well Really, really well on stage. Yeah, yeah. There's a wonderful picture in, um, there's a fantastic photographic book called The Half by Simon Anand, who's a theatre photographer, which is, it's one of my favourite books ever. Um, He did do a follow-up actually, but in it is, it's um, photographs of actors preparing to go on stage. So lots of um, photographs of actors in dressing rooms, putting on their makeup, um, kind of waiting in the wings, standing at stage door. There's a really lovely photograph of, I can't can't remember who the actor is, but he's preparing to go on stage as Benjamin and he's um, standing at stage door in full scuba gear. (laughs) 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 <laughs> it's really great Excellent. and it's lovely as well because when it we, when it came out it was 20 years worth of photographs mm-hmm. so in there there's like oh my god there's David Tennant's first stage role and wow. he's just like a kind of sort of scrawny youth dressed in um, dressed in like restoration gear about to go on stage in a Sheridan play or something like that it's a yeah. fantastic book cannot recommend it highly enough if you're interested in the theatre at all it's really great but yeah um, the full scoop gear which is um, it's kind of iconic I think that moment and it, like you were saying before it's so funny when you because we don't know what it is that the parents have made him do and he doesn't want to come out yeah. and you just see him in his scuba <laughs> yeah, gear it's when you get so- because his, his dad's given it the whole big build-up, isn't he? He's given it, it's it's like he's a sort of circus ringmaster almost sort of announcing his arrival. And he's like, I don't want to come out. I don't want to come out. And then we finally see that he's head to toe in this scuba gear. It, despite the fact that they are celebrating him graduating and kind of becoming a man, mm-hmm. they really are keeping him as a child. They are using him, you know, he, he gets kind of dragged out at their parties for their friends to entertain. Yeah. And be a child. It's no one. It's like okay. What is one of the most adult things you can think to do? Have an affair with a married woman in a hotel room. It's kind of like he's fighting back against the position his parents are trying to keep him in of this sort of trophy child. We don't. We don't see them after we find out about the affair, do we? Because we we see Mr. Robinson. Mm-hmm. Mr. Robinson turns up later to have a chat with Benjamin about the affair, but we don't see what his parents think, do we? Yes. Uh, ah, I I don't think his parents find out about the. Affair. Oh, because we do have another scene 
with him and his yes. parents once he's decided that he's going to to marry Elaine yeah. which is just, it's one of the funniest things like, I'm going to marry Elaine Robinson and they get so excited his mother's sort of screaming mm. yay okay when, when, when was this decided oh, about two hours ago Elaine doesn't know about it no she doesn't know <laughs> she doesn't know it's so funny yeah their sort of dynamic Elaine and Benjamin it's like mm. it's like watching parents on a long car journey with a child who keeps asking if we're there yet like she's just trying to get on with her life and he's just like will you marry me now will you marry me tomorrow he, like he just badgers her until mm. she gives in but it does feel like she's giving into something she genuinely wants it, I don't, it didn't feel sort of sinister or upsetting the film doesn't really explore elaine at all actually it doesn't really spend any time getting into elaine's head so we we hear a lot about her before we meet her she doesn't show up until halfway through the film uh, yeah because it's it's ben's parents are sort of pushing him to take her out and pushing him to take her out and he's like no we don't mm. get on and then finally he relents mrs robinson not at all happy but he takes her out and they have this date uh, have you seen taxi driver yes so <laughs> it put me in mind of the date that Travis Bickle takes uh, Sybil Shepherd out on yes. when he takes her to a, <laughs> a, a pornographic movie and she's just like I don't know why you thought I would like this and, <laughs> and he just goes well no I see couples come here all the time <laughs> so the date that Ben takes her on it's like an intentional version of that exactly because it's like it's and actually he's quite it's like okay what is the worst thing I can possibly do yeah. what is the how can I put her off the best he doesn't anticipate that it will upset her in the way it does I think he's expecting her to be angry and like he can cope with her being angry at him but he can't cope with her being upset I mean he takes her to a topless bar he's being so obnoxious but he's kind of being obnoxious like I think you can see because we've kind of gotten to know him it's like he's prepared a script for himself and he's following it completely and then she doesn't follow the script and that's why he's then like oh he can't follow through with the, his plan you know because she she gets she gets properly upset yeah as you would as you would once she gets upset he sort of half comes clean about why he was behaving like such a dick and then from there they have quite a lovely date it's actually the only time in the film where we get a glimpse of what benjamin is sort of actually like at his core mm-hmm. they go to the drive through like burger place and they're talking so animatedly and he's really talking to her and she's really listening to him it's a beautiful thing and then they kind of close themselves off it's that thing i was talking about before about how he knows how to give them privacy because they he hangs right back from them when she's upset and crying in the street Mm -hmm. and then benjamin kisses her and then he also hangs right back when they uh, the music is playing really loud next to them and they close the lid not the lid the roof (laughs) They close the roof on the car and we don't go into the car with them. We hang right back Mm. and just watch them from afar and just and we know that it's quite private and yeah. I just think that's lovely. It's interesting. I, I don't think if this film were made today, I don't think you'd get the shot that long after that roof is closed. No. It just a director today or indeed the studio looking at it with this too long with nothing happening. There's not nothing happening though. There's nothing happening. There's so much <laughs> happening. So there much happening. So much happening. And then the kind of yeah, the next day. I absolutely love the trick that it pulls on us when He's waiting outside the Robinson's house for a lane and you see a pair of legs come running towards the car in the rain and then it's Mrs. Robinson yes. who gets in the car. And it is like dread heart. It's yeah. like, Ugh! it's so wonderful. Yeah, it's yeah. She's fabulous. Oh. God, and Bancroft, what a performance. She's absolutely amazing in this she film. She is, she's fucking brilliant. 
because in the moment she's got such a twinkle in her eye mm-hmm. and one of my one of my favorite bits the bit that made me laugh so hard mm-hmm. is when benjamin in the hotel room decides to kiss her but he it chooses the moment when she's just taking a drag on the <laughs> yes. cigarette and so she's just stood there waiting for him to finish so that she can exhale. exhale yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. And she is so, so just so so deadpan with it. I think it's really wonderful that we don't actually see any of their love scenes. We only see them sort of drifting around semi-clothed in the hotel rooms. Yeah. And again, I don't think a film, if it was if they remade this, I don't think they would be able to show that restraint. But it just makes me wonder what on earth the sex is like. Mm. I kind of can't imagine that it's very good. No, it would be transactional completely transactional relatively dead-eyed and that's that yeah and that's why so they, when they're having the affair and then ben just sort of realizes that he he wants more than just this out of it. Mm-hmm. and that's when he's trying he tries to talk to her and tries to just drag some sort of conversation out of mrs robinson yeah, yeah. but that's not what she's in it for at all exactly like you said we've had um the sound of silence is mm-hmm. kind of the soundtrack to that is the bit of the film where benjamin has no purpose Yes. Because uh, that and that's the section where the affair happens. Mm-hmm. And then when Elaine emerges as his purpose, as his intention, and he kind of know he's finally got a direction to go in, we switch to Scarborough Fair. Yes. Which is kind of Elaine's music. I find that transition really interesting because they are very two very different pieces of music. Yeah. There's whimsy and slight sort of directionlessness in Scarborough Fair that mm. I think is really fitting. And you're kind of just sort of observing Elaine from a distance going about her life while this beautiful music is playing. What do you think about that section where Benjamin is like stalking her? <laughs> if, I, if, I, if, I, if I can be honest about what I think is going on there. And I think it's fine because I, I think that the film knows that he's being a bit of a weirdo. Yeah, also they have at this point made a, a genuine connection and she's the only person that he's ever made a connection with. And to be honest, I don't get the impression that she's got a lot of friends either. Mm. I don't feel like she's got a lot in her life. Well, I suppose in a way, and certainly the very final shot of the film indicates that they've kind of been on a very similar trajectory. Mm-hmm. So in the way that he, he's he gone to university, been a track hero, got his good degree, all of that stuff. She has gone to university and has found herself a nice, dull successful jock type man to marry mm-hmm. um she's kind of done her version of of what you're supposed to do at university in the 60s if you're a kind of clever girl you know there's a version of this film that's from elaine's point of view oh for sure wouldn't that be great I'd be fascinated to see that let's make that okay <laughs> we'll add that to our growing list of projects the, the author did uh, did write a sequel novel oh really yeah do we know what happens in it so uh, this is from the Wikipedia page for Homeschool, uh, which was published in 2007. Oh, okay. Um, so it's set in the 70s. So it says here, In Homeschool, Benjamin Braddock and Elaine, now married and living in Westchester County, New York, are fighting with their school district to allow for their sons, Jason and Matt, to be homeschooled. They turn to Mrs. Robinson to help them, who decides to seduce and blackmail the principal. The novel is set in the 1970s. Webb stated that Ben chose to do homeschooling because he felt disenchanted with education, a message that was in the previous novel. Um, That sounds dreadful. I'm glad you said that. I think it sounds like the absolute pits. Um, It sounds fucking awful. It sounds like a a very terrible cash-in. Would not be reading that. Excellent. Let's move on. (laughs) Let's... (laughs) 
Shall we talk about the end? Yes, let's. But we have got this really good kind of denouement where Benjamin finds out that um, Elena's going to get married to this guy and he basically is trying to chase them down and find out where the church is and stop the wedding, which he does in a, an iconic moment where he's banging on the glass and going, Elaine! Yeah. Interestingly, uh, one of the things I didn't realise is she's married him. Mm. already yep. they are actually legally married because he doesn't get there in time to stop the wedding so she runs out on her husband of 30 seconds yes she does kind of there's a mirroring i think in the imagery of all of those people clawing at her trying to hold her back mm-hmm. is very similar i think to at the beginning when all of those people are clawing at benjamin as he's kind of coming down the stairs at the party they are like two halves two different sides of a coin she they both are desperately trying to escape yeah. from their situation and each of them is offering the other person an escape but I, or maybe maybe it's not the right one because they then get onto the they get onto the bus mm. and they're sort of delirious they're sort of laughing exhilarated that they've kind of escaped from them and it's great and then they both sort of settle yeah and my question is is it a happy ending? Yes, it is a happy ending. Um, is it a happily ever after? No, no, it's not. But it, it is a happy ending to the movie and to their story um, because they're both free to pursue their lives as they mm-hmm. desire from that moment. Mm. To an extent, as you say, Elaine is married to Carl at this point. But you know what? Once you've run out on the wedding, <laughs> that yeah. should, should be uh, easy enough to resolve. It's happy in the sense that they have absolutely done, they have done the worst thing that they they could do in terms mm. of their family. Yeah. Like they have removed their safety net. Oh, completely. For themselves, which will help them move on. Yeah, and become the people that they will be in their lives. They, they've put away childish things. They have, you know, yes. they've broken out on their own and they get on that bus and they sit there and they're delirious and they're delirious and then they sit there and they sit there and you just you see them both just go fuck <laughs> okay how's this gonna work but out? then the, the sound of silence comes back in mm-hmm. and so you're like ah mm-hmm. the film is cyclical so are we back where we started are we back in a state of like oh shit I don't know what to do like I don't know I don't think the ending is happy I think that the ending makes me very uneasy mm. and not in a kind of indecisive like oh it's over way but in a in a properly like oh god mm-hmm. I get a little bit of dread heart at the end of the film yeah. yeah I think I think that's what they get in that moment they get oh fuck what have yeah. we done oh shit oh how do we how do we how do we live life how, what do we do oh no yeah. um so yeah I think it's absolutely right that we as the audience feel exactly the same way about yeah. it that, that they do I think that means it's done its job because she looks to him and he doesn't look at her a little bit like how Mrs. Robinson for him gave he thought she was giving him a way out of his situation and actually she hadn't Mm -hmm. he's kind of done the same thing for her because he's it's like she's one step behind him on the journey because she's she hasn't quite graduated yet whereas he just has yes and he this massive life-changing thing happens to him when he embarks on this affair Mm -hmm. but it isn't the solution that he thought it would be and she runs out on her wedding and there's just an indication there's just a hint Mm -hmm. in that when she looks to him for what reassurance guidance he doesn't look back at her and it's almost like her realizing that this is not the the solution that she thought it was going to be. Yeah. Or at least that, that realisation to come, maybe. Yeah. Is 
the version of this film uh, from Elaine's perspective is that basically Rose's story in Titanic. She's sort of oh trapped, my God. trapped, Hang trapped, on. trapped, trapped. In sweeps this, well, not sort of dashing young artist, but this neurotic basket case. Who, <laughs> A neurotic young runner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who uh, who who gives her permission to break free of her of her chains. Yeah. And then at the end, she's looking at him on the bus, but he's frozen to he's death. He's frozen to death. He doesn't look at her because he's <laughs> frozen to death. And she's got to let him go. And she goes, ah, oh, now I've got to live the rest of my life. Hey, do you know what? I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So two things that I wanted to talk about in, in, in the sort of in the end. So first of all, actually, the whole sequence leading up to the to the end, to the church, I want to talk about because I, I love that when he's on his way and he's in the car and you get it's the music specifically that I want to talk about because you've got this. Um, yes. Like acoustic guitar, a version of Mrs. Robinson, um, Simon Garfield, Mrs. Robinson. That's mm. just an acoustic guitar and a uh, voice and it just it, it's like it's stuttering you've just got mm. the guitar and the do-do's so you've got the do-do-do-do and it's like it's do-do and it's like stuttering and frustrating and frustrating and frustrating while he's driving he's driving he's driving and then he's in this tunnel and then he comes out of the tunnel and then ah you break into the chorus and it's like he's free he's made the decision he's off to find this woman he loves great 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 yeah then he he, he finds out where elaine's getting married um he does that bit of chicanery at the at the garage and then it's oh back to business yeah. and it's just the the guitar and the doot-doos again the doot-doos and the guitar and it's like oh urgent urgent and frustrating and urgent and then again it breaks into the chorus um when he's like free and he knows where she is and great here we go and then the car breaks down and you just yeah um but i just love the way the music sort of builds that tension and then releases it builds it again and then releases it and then just sort of grinds to a halt it's really interesting that the the music that soundtracks this kind of quite exciting actually mm. denouement like this like building 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 and exactly like you say it's perfectly paced to match what we're seeing and it's about Mrs. Robinson. Mm-hmm. It's about the woman who started him off on this track. Mm-hmm. I just think that's really interesting. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but as I was sitting there watching it, mm. and I was like, they're singing Mrs. Robinson, Mrs. Robinson, but it kind of it shouldn't be about her in this moment. Yeah, it's it should weird. be about somebody else. Yeah, I agree. It's weird. <laughs> Apparently, the song Mrs. Robinson already existed, and they changed it to be Mrs. Robinson. Oh, how interesting. It was actually going to be a different name. Basically, um, Paul Simon was so busy because he was constantly touring that he didn't have time to write as many songs for the film as he wanted to. Right. And so um, he'd been working on a, on a song that wasn't for the film at all mm-hmm. but he played a little bit of it to um, Mike Nichols just to say um, yeah this is what I've been working on and it was actually Mrs. Roosevelt um. not Mrs. Robinson here's to you Mrs. Roosevelt so they just changed it to Mrs. Robinson which is possibly why the song doesn't actually make very much sense in the context of the movie yeah I, I think it's an incredible song and I love it but I haven't yeah. ever really entirely known what it was about and I certainly don't really understand what it's about in the context of the film so maybe that's why probably it's a great song, though. Yeah. And even though it is completely incongruous that they're singing about Mrs. Robinson at this particular moment, the yeah. music works so beautifully um, that I kind of forgive that. I mean, considering there are four um, Simon and Garfunkel songs in this, mm-hmm. and I can't for the life of me remember what the fourth one April is. April comes, she will. Which is only used once, whereas all of the other so- all of the other songs in it are used 
repeatedly. Yeah. They really like mean something. Mm. Yeah. Mrs. Robinson as a breaking free mm. song works so well. Yeah. April Comes She Will is used um, in a sort of very specific moment to just Mm. underscore the passage of time. Um, I Mm. think because it it literally goes through the months, April, May, June, July, I think up to September. Um, That is, I think, charting the length of time of the affair. Yes. Yeah. It bridges Sound of Silence to Scarborough Fair. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I was was surprised that there weren't more uh, songs than those four. I know. I didn't need any more, like dramatically in the movie. I didn't need any more than that. When you're using kind of pop artists to do a soundtrack and you're only using four songs, it it means something. Mm -hmm. They're not needle drops. They're very deliberate. So I think, yeah, it's a really interesting example of that. After Elaine has like charged away from the altar and Dustin Hoffman's running down the stairs and they map it sort of like turns into a zombie movie almost like all of these people are sort of just crowding yeah. and and uh, and Ben grabs the massive crucifix and he's like he's like in a back 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 kind of just swinging it round while this horde of people are coming at him. I was just like, oh my god, it's turned into <laughs> into Night of the Living yeah, Dead or something. It's, it's amazing. So funny. I I'd forgotten that he picks up the crucifix. Yeah, because that's that's what he locks them all in with. He shoves it through yes. the uh, through the the door handles of the church and locks them all in. You know, if what if what this film is is two young people people breaking free of the expectations of their parents' generation. Mm-hmm. What a way to do it than to wave a crucifix at them and lock them in a church. Yeah. It's like, keep your keep your straight-laced yeah. post-war. Yeah. Literally locking them in. You are trapped in this and we are free of this. Bye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it lovely when a film that the world has decided is an important and good film Mm -hmm. ends up being so good. Yes, it is. And we'll revisit a lot of the kind of quote-unquote masterpieces, I'm sure. I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example of a film where I'm like, well, everybody in the world has said that this is important and good and I've watched it and I don't get it. I just don't get it. Mm. And a lot of that is to do with time. Yeah. And this film is just so good and important and it is timeless actually and i think it's it's a masterpiece an absolute masterpiece yeah it really really is there were two other things that i wanted to mention mm. um first of all uh, did you spot the young richard dreyfus no i didn't <laughs> spot him but i then read about the fact that he's there so i need to go back and watch him yeah yeah, yeah. where is he uh, so when ben has elaine in that room that he's staying in that sort of shitty room that lodging house that, yeah, thing. lodging house where the, the guy who owns the place has been really quite shirty with him several times um and elaine does that big scream and the guy comes running to the door and you know they have that mm. confrontation in the door and like all of the other lodgers just sort of ping in uh, from different directions into frame it's like um a kind of like brady bunch like all their heads kind of pop pop around the frame like boing 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 yeah, it's exactly. so funny and richard dreyfus is the last one to pop into frame he pops in the front he's the one who goes shall i get the cops i'll get the cops fantastic and uh, the other thing that i wanted to mention um just because it made me laugh real hard so when ben first goes to the hotel he ends up in his sort of awkward way getting shuttled off into like some other party where he introduces himself as mr braddock but they sort of all mishear him as mr braneth and then he sort of like extracts himself from that and then later on when he takes it well when he has the date with elaine and they want to go and get some more drinks she suggests the very same hotel and he's like oh no i don't think they've got a bar there she's like don't be silly they've got a bar there and they go there (laughs) they, they arrive at the hotel and he's like yeah see i don't think there's a bar here and she's like there's a bar right over there um 
and they're there in the lobby of the hotel and everybody keeps uh, keeps introducing <laughs> themselves so it keeps yes. sort of recognizing him and they keep referring to him as Mr Gladstone which is what he's been known as to yes. all the hotel staff uh, during the course of the affair Mr Gladstone Mr Gladstone Mr Gladstone and then as they're leaving <laughs> He bumps into one of the ladies from the uh, from the other do that he'd got shuttled into and just goes, ah, oh, hey, Mr. Braniff. And it's just it's, this beautiful oh. button on the scene. It's a beautiful callback. It, yeah. Yeah. I kind of love this film. Yeah, I think I do. Of the movies that we've watched so far, I think this is my favourite screenplay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. But I think it's also kind of one of the most visually interesting mm. because the camera placement feels so much more deliberate mm. and actually kind of theatrical. Mm-hmm. This film felt blocked. Yes, yes. I know what you mean. And I think it's all the better for it. Yeah, there are no there are no accidents in this film, but not not in the sort of Wes Anderson everything is hyper sorted mm. out to the last inch. Everything is meticulously considered. Every frame is a work of art. On that note... My duvet has fallen down on me, so I think it's time for us to move fix on. Fix that and uh, we'll discuss what we're doing next. So we this is a bit of a tricky one because actually, beca- just because of me moving house and various other things... I did reveal to Ed what the next film was going to be a couple of weeks ago, actually, because that's where we're at. So Ed does already know, but I would still really love you to talk me through what you would have chosen and what you would have thought I would have chosen. Right. Well, I'm going to confess to you now, I did think about this um, in quite some detail like a week ago. And I can't for the (laughs) life of me, I can't for the life of me remember what any of my answers were. All right, well, I think I know I know pretty much what I would do. I would be in a mind to follow Robert Surtees, the cinematographer, and have a look at his work on The Sting from 1973. Ooh. Mostly because I love it. Have you seen The Sting? No, I haven't. Oh, have you not? But I, I'm, I re- have remembered in this moment how much you love it, and you've talked about how much you love it before. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. You, I must make a point of I'm it. I'm yeah. certain you would love the sting. Yeah, so that's what I would do. I'm ever so sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't know for the life of me what I would expect you to do. That's okay. Well, shall I just tell you what I've done? Yeah, tell me what you've done. I'll tell you what I've done. So, I really wanted to choose a film that notably had a soundtrack by a particular recording artist. Because I think the soundtrack in The Graduate is so important. It's notable for being by Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. And obviously this doesn't, I, I don't mean like a film composer, so I'm not going to choose a film that has been scored by Hans Zimmer or something like that. This is like kind of a pop recording artist. I went down a few different routes. I almost chose, what's the Bob Dylan film? Uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Almost chose that. But then I lighted on... A, a delightful sort of discovery and I was like oh yeah let's do that so we are going to be watching a film uh, it's a directorial debut fucking great cast it's another film that I definitely have seen before but I don't really remember very much about it and it's a soundtrack that I listened to a lot at the time that this film came out and I hadn't really associated it with the film so I'm really interested to see how it works out uh, the soundtrack is by Air mm-hmm who um, are a French duo. And the film we're going to watch is The Virgin Suicides by Sofia Coppola. 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 Coppola? Coppola. 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 
The Virgin Suicides. Um, And actually, again, it's another adaptation of a novel, um, like The Graduate. And there's a Kathleen Turner connection. Kathleen Turner played Mrs. Robinson on Broadway, and she's also in The Virgin Suicides. Very excited about that. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to this one. I have not seen it, but yet several things here that I that I like. I've enjoyed uh, Sophia Coppola's work. Now I know Kathleen Turner's in it. I'm excited for that. I love a bit of Kathleen Turner. I think Kirsten Dunst is a criminally underrated actor. She is. It's also got a very early career Josh Hartnett. I don't know if it's his if it's his introducing. I don't think so. Um, you can find it. Uh, it's, oh, I think you can only rent it. Um, I haven't been able to find it for free anywhere. So, um, well, I say for free as part of a subscription. So you'd have to rent it um, in all the usual places. So um, Prime, YouTube, Google. And it's a, a cool 97 minutes long. So, um, yeah, perfect time. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, what a great choice. Oh, I'm really... Well, I hope so. It remains to be seen. Um, is there anything? Is there anything else that you're looking forward to watching in the next week? Oh, blimey. Well, like I say, I've got a large television. So um, there's, I mean, there's so much stuff. Richard said to me, he was like, I want to watch a Jurassic Park film on that screen. So we we may well watch a Jurassic Park. I am... I'm trying to think. I was having a look at the cinema. There's so much stuff on at the cinema that I really want to go and see, but I don't know if I'm going to get time. So I'd really like to see Asteroid City. I think... Indiana Jones can fuck off. Yeah. Probably. Probably. Like, I, I don't want to get my heart broken again. I know. And I don't want to get my heart, like, double broken because I don't want um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge to be shit. <laughs> <laughs> it happened It happened with Kate Blanchett in the last one and I just don't want to see it. For me at the moment, as far as sort of current releases are concerned, it's a little bit slim pickings. Asteroid City, I'm keen to see just because I love Wes Anderson. And uh, yeah, I want to make my own mind up. Yeah. Um, also, actually, I think the trailer does have a couple of real good lines in it um, that have yeah. made me laugh. So. And there's some actors in it who are new to Wes Anderson's kind of roster, who I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do um, under his direction, like Scarlett Johansson and um, Tom Hanks in a bit of Wes. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Who was the other one? Oh, um, what's the name? Is it Mia or Maya Hawke? Maya Hawke. Oh, yeah, Maya Hawke. Yeah, Maya Hawke. Yeah, I really yeah, like she's her. She's great. I yeah. It's funny, yeah, when she first showed up in Stranger Things, I was like, Oh, who's this? She yeah, and as that sort of that first season that she was in went on, I was like, She's a star. And then I realised that she's literally born to be a star as the daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. Um Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's like I just can't take my eyes off her because she's like stunningly beautiful, mm-hmm. but she's kind of goofy mm-hmm. and I, I, yeah, I think she's great. And when uh, in Stranger Things, I kind of couldn't wait for her to be back on the screen. So that I think Asteroid City might be the only thing I might get to go and see at the cinema this week. And I would like to try. Yeah, it's the only thing that I'll make an effort to go and see. If I happen to see Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, then fine. Because I quite liked uh, the one before. Like, superhero movies generally, for me, are kind of done now. But I did enjoy... Uh, into the Spider-Verse. I thought the animation style was just great. Yeah, I've heard really good stuff about it, but I have just entirely opted out of superhero movies, unfortunately. So I was a bit like, oh, I can't be asked. That's fair. I am... Um... I read a really. Uh, was I listening to a podcast? I think it was a. I think it was a podcast. Um, really interesting discussion about how superhero movies have kind of changed changed the careers of people in the sense that 
bait like so for example samuel L. jackson mm-hmm. hasn't had time to do any other projects than his marvel projects so actually it's like i wonder what samuel L. jackson would have done if he'd had more time to make different films hmm. or like chris hemsworth I wonder what he would have done in his career if he hadn't been stuck playing Thor for 10 years, you know? I don't know. It's it's a, the, the way the, the studio system has sort of been mm. reborn, um, you know, like how it was in the golden age of Hollywood where a, a, an actor mm. would be contracted to work for a studio mm. for X number of movies. As far as Samuel L. Jackson, most of those movies he shows up for... A moment. Moments, you know what I mean? Mm. I refuse to believe that his work as Nick Fury has meant he is too busy to do other <laughs> yeah. more interesting projects. I refuse to believe that. Well, one of the interesting, one of the more interesting projects he chose to do last year was the fucking Chris Rock Saw film. And yeah, I love the Saw films. So I, I was very, I was just, it just really pissed me off. I, just, I, <laughs> I, think, I think Chris Rock should just keep his fucking hands off. Chris Rock was like a super fan of Saw, wasn't he? And that was why he wanted to do it. Yeah, exactly. That's why he wanted to do it. He was like, oh yeah, I think horror and comedy work really well together. I think he's completely right. He just made his character fucking loathsome. Mm. He was so loathsome. And I I actually didn't finish the film because I couldn't bear to watch him anymore. I'd rather watch people get their legs snapped off, mm. frankly. It's interesting. The, the idea of comedy and horror, instinctively, I don't think they do. It takes a really special talent to pull off comedy mm. horror, as we've discussed in the past. Mm. It takes Sam Raimi or Edgar Wright or... Mm. Um, Wes Craven and inevitably because laughter is a release of tension the comedy element will always 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 diminish the horror interesting because I I'm not sure I entirely agree I think that Mm. that's the case most of the time absolutely but I think that there can be moments where comedy can be used you can build tension diffuse it with comedy and then really scare people because they've let the guard down I don't remember being scared during a during a comedy horror movie Mm, yeah yeah I guess you're right even even Evil Dead no no it's not scary there is horror in it and it it is in places horrifying and actually in the first Evil Dead I'm thinking of one particular moment that is that is horrifying but interestingly that's a moment that Sam Raimi has said that he wouldn't do if he were making that movie now yes I now I now know which bit you're talking about yeah he yeah he's described that as the work of a young director trying to make a mark yeah I I can't think of a time that I've watched a comedy horror movie and been scared however I can think of really frightening films that have elements of comedy that work really well yes 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 I agree do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, yeah, like The Cabin in the Woods is not frightening. No. Tucker and Dale versus Evil mm. is not actually frightening. But then again, Ed, I've lost track of what I find frightening because I honestly <laughs> haven't been scared by a horror film for such a long fucking time. Yeah. I just, I'm desperate to be scared. I really want to be scared. Yeah. Would you consider Nightmare on Elm Street comedy horror? No. Because I, I, I kind of would, but it's it's the one that comes closest to still being scary. I think it's really fucking funny. And I think Freddy, Freddy Krueger is more funny than he is scary. Interesting. I think there's a moment that is unintentionally funny and it's when his arms go all long <laughs> when he when he walks down that road like Mr Tickle mm. that's funny but I don't think they intend it to be and I don't think A Nightmare on Elm Street was made to be funny that's interesting because I, I think it's really funny the stuff like the tongue coming out of the phone all that stuff it's like it's unsettling but it's all that stuff is funny as well I don't think that's funny interesting (laughs) right well there we go we have to agree to disagree please um listeners write in with your weigh-in on this debate is nightmare on elm street a comedy horror film or just a (laughs) horror film with some accidental funny bits 
<laughs> maybe i'm just sick i don't know I, honestly texas chainsaw massacre is the scariest film i've ever seen but that is also a really funny movie oh yeah i agree with you on that wouldn't consider that to be comedy horror though no well that is an example of when the comedy can be used to just i think it's in that way that like mm. it's like your heart rate monitor mm-hmm. in order to really feel those lows you have to feel the highs. Mm-hmm. So it's like, actually, if a, if a film can add some proper genuine laughs in, you're going to feel the horror more. The two, I think the two goals to frighten and to uh, make somebody laugh, they're two sides of the same coin and you can't have both at the same time. It's like in Harry Potter, the, whole, the idea mm-hmm. of the boggart where it's like something that scares you and the way that you disarm it is by making it funny yeah it's like well you yeah they cut both things can't exist at the same time well um all that remains is to say a massive thank you for listening to this week's episode of the unbreakable movie chain and um, if you like what you hear please subscribe rate and review wherever you get your podcasts um, and feel free to get in touch with us we would love to hear from you you can do that on the social medias um all of them every single one presumably i don't know um and you can also email us at moviechain at outlook.com we would love to hear from you Uh, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me excellent thanks ed (laughs) 